Section 7, Part 2 of Harding's Luck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. Harding's Luck by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 4, Part 2. Which was the dream? Quite soon, Dickie was able to walk downstairs and out into the garden along the grassy walks and long alleys where fruit trees trained over trellises made such pleasant green shade, and even to try to learn to play at bowls on the long bowling green behind the house. The house was by far the finest house Dickie had ever been in, and the garden was more beautiful than the garden at Talbot Court. But it was not only the beauty of the house and garden that made Dickie's life a new and full delight. To limp along the leafy ways, to crawl up and down the carved staircase, would have been a pleasure greater than any Dickie had ever known. But he could leap up and down the stairs three at a time. He could run in the arched alleys, run and jump, as he had seen other children do and as he had never thought to do himself. Imagine what you would feel if you had lived wingless all your life among people who could fly. That is how lame people feel among us who can walk and run. And now Dickie was lame no more. His feet seemed not only to be strong and active, but clever on their own account. They carried him quite without mistake to the blacksmiths at the village on the hill, to the center of the maze of clipped hedges that was the center of the garden, and best of all, they carried him to the dockyard. Girls like dolls and tea parties and picture books, but boys like to see things made and done. Else how is it that any boy worth his salt will leave the newest and brightest toys to follow a carpenter or a plumber round the house, fiddle with his tools, ask him a thousand questions, and watch him ply his trade? Dickie, at New Cross, had spent many an hour watching those interesting men who open square trap doors in the pavement and drag out from them yards and yards of wire. I do not know why the men do this. But every London boy who reads this will know. And when he got to the dockyard, his obliging feet carried him to a man in a great leather apron, busy with great beams of wood and tools that Dickie had never seen. And the man greeted him as an old friend, kissed him on both cheeks, which he didn't expect, and felt much too old for and spread a sack for him that he might sit in the sun on a big bulk of timber. "'Thou art a sight for sore eyes, Master Richard,' said he. "'It's many a long day since thou was here to pester me with thy question. "'And all's strong again, no bones broken, "'and I'll teach thee to make a galleon like as I promised.' "'Will you indeed?' said Dickie, trembling with joy and pride. "'That will I,' said the man, and threw up his pointed beard in a jolly laugh, and see what I've made thee while thou'st been lazing in bed, a real English ship of war. He laid down the auger he held, and went into a low, rough shed, 
and next moment came out with a little ship in his hand, a perfect model of the strange, high-built ships Dicky could see on the river. "'Tis the picture,' said he proudly, "'of my old ship, the Golden Venture, that I sailed in with Master Raleigh, and helped to sink the accursed armada, and clip the King of Spain his wings, and singe his beard. The armada, said Dicky, with a new and quite strange feeling, rather like going down unexpectedly in a lift. The Spanish armada? What other? asked the shipbuilder. Thou'st heard a story a thousand times. I want to hear it again, Dicky said and heard the story of England's great danger and her great escapes. It was just the same story as the one you read in your history book, and yet how different when it was told by a man who had been there, who had felt the danger, known the escape. Dickie held his breath. And so, the story ended, the breath of the Lord went forth, and the storm blew, and fell on the fleet of Spain, and scattered them, and they went down in our very waters, they and their arms, and their treasure, their guns and their gunners, their mariners, and their men of war. And the remnant was scattered and driven northward, and some were wrecked on the rocks, and some our ships met and dealt with, and some poor few made shift to get back across the sea, trailing home like wounded mallards, to tell the king, their master, what the Lord had done for England. How long ago was it, all this? Dickie asked. If his memory served, it was hundreds of years ago. Three, five. He could not remember how many, but hundreds. Could this man, whose hair was only just touched with gray, be hundreds of years old? How long? A matter of twenty years or thereabouts, said the shipbuilder. See the pretty little ship, and thy very own, for I made it for thee. It was indeed a pretty little ship, being a perfect model of an Elizabethan ship, built up high at bow and stern, for, as Sebastian explained, majesty and terror of the enemy, with the deck and orlop, waist and poop, hold and masts, all complete with forecastle and cabin, masts and spars, portholes and guns, sails, anchor, and carved figurehead. The woodwork was painted in white and green and red, and at bow and stern was richly carved and gilded. For me, Dickie said, really for me? and you made it yourself. Truth to tell, I began it long since in the long winter evenings, said his friend, and now tis done, and tis thine. See, I shall put an apron on thee, and thou shalt be my prentice, and learn to build another quaint ship like her, to be her consort, and we will sail them together in the pond in thy father's garden. Dickie, still devouring the little golden venture with his eyes, submitted to the leather apron, and felt in his hand the smooth handle of the tool Sebastian put there. But, he said, I don't understand. 
You remember the Armada twenty years ago. I thought it was hundreds and hundreds. Twenty years ago, or nearer eighteen, said Sebastian. Thou'll have to learn to reckon better than that if thou wants to be my prentice. Twas in the year of grace, 1588, and we are now in the year 1606. This makes it eighteen years to my reckoning. It was 1906 in my dream, said Dickie. I mean, in my fever. In fever, Sebastian said, folk travel far. Now hold the wood so, and the knife thus. Then every day Dickie went down to the dockyard when lessons were done, for there were lessons now with a sour-faced tutor in a black gown, whom Dickie disliked extremely. The tutor did not seem to like Dickie either. The child hath forgot in his fever all that ever he learned of me, he complained to the old nurse, who nodded wisely, and said he would soon learn all afresh. And he did, very quickly, learn a great deal, and always it was more like remembering than learning. And a second tutor, very smart in red velvet and gold, with breeches like balloons and a short cloak and a ruff, who was an extremely jolly fellow, came in the mornings to teach them to fence, to dance and to run and to leap and to play bowls, and promised in due time to teach him wrestling, catching, archery, palmol, rackets, riding, tennis, and all sports and games proper for a youth of gentle blood. And weeks went by, and still his father and mother had not come, and he had learned a little Greek and more Latin. Could carve a box with the arms of his house on the lid, and make that lid fit, could bow like a courtier, and speak like a gentleman, and play a simple air on the viol that hung in the parlor for guests to amuse themselves while they waited to see the master or mistress. And then came the day when old nurse dressed him in his best, a suit of cut velvet, purple slashed with gold color, and a belt with a little sword to it and a flat cap. And Master Henry, the games master, took him in a little boat to a gilded galley full of gentlemen and ladies, all finely dressed, who kissed him and made much of him, and said how he has grown since the fever. And one gentleman, very fine indeed, appeared to be his uncle, and a most charming lady in blue and silver seemed to be his aunt, and a very jolly little boy and girl, who sat by him and talked merrily all the while, were his little cousins. Cups of wine and silver dishes of fruit and cakes were handed round. The galley was decked with fresh flowers, and from another boat quite near came the sound of music. The sun shone overhead, and the clear river sparkled, and more and more boats, all gilded and flower-wreathed, appeared on the water. Then there was a sound of shouting. The river suddenly grew alive with the glitter of drawn swords. The butterfly glitter of ladies waved scarves and handkerchiefs, and a great gilded barge 
came slowly downstream, followed by a procession of smaller craft. Everyone in the galley stood up. The gentlemen saluted with their drawn swords. The ladies fluttered their scarves. His Majesty and the Queen, the little cousins whispered as the state barge went by. Then all the galleys fell into place behind the king's barge, and the long, beautiful procession went slowly on down the river. Dickie was very happy. The little cousins were so friendly and jolly, the grown-up people so kind, everything so beautiful and so clean. It was a perfect day. The river was very beautiful. It ran between banks of willows and alders, where loose strife and meadow-sweet and willow-herb and yarrow grew tall and thick. There were water-lilies in shady backwaters, and beautiful gardens sloping down to the water. At last the boats came to a pretty little town among trees. This is where we disembark, said the little girl cousin. The king lies here to-night at St. Thomas Bradbury's, and we lie at our grandfather's house, and to-morrow it is the mosque in St. Thomas's Park, and we are here to see it. I am glad thou'st well of thy fever, Richard, and I shouldn't have liked it half so well if thou hadn't been here, she said, smiling, and of course that was a very nice thing to have said to one. And then we go home to Deptford with thee, said the boy cousin. We are to stay a month, and we'll see thy galleon, and get old Sebastian to make me one too. Yes, said Dickie, as the boat came against the quay. What is this place? Gravesend. Thou knowst that, said the little cousins, or hadst thou forgotten that too, in thy fever? Gravesend? Dickie repeated, in quite a changed voice. Come, children, said the aunt. Oh, what a different aunt to the one who had slapped Dickie in Deptford sold the rabbit hutch, and shot the moon. You boys remember how I showed you to carry my train, and my girl will not forget how to fling the flowers from the gilt basket as the king and queen come down the steps. The grandfather's house and garden, the stately, white-haired grandfather, whom they called my lord, and who was, it seemed, the aunt's father. The banquet the picture gallery, the gardens lit up by little colored oil lamps, hung in festoons from tree to tree, the blazing torches, the music, the mosque, a sort of play without words, in which everyone wore the most wonderful and beautiful dresses, and the queen herself took a part dressed all in gauze and jewels and white swan's feathers. All these things were like a dream to Dickie, and through it all the words kept on saying themselves to him very gently, very quietly, and without stopping. Gravesend, that's where the lodging-house is where Beale is waiting for you, the man you called father. You promised to go there as soon as you could. Why haven't you gone? 
Gravesend. That's where the lodging house is, where Beale, and so on, over and over again. And how can anyone enjoy anything when this sort of thing keeps on saying itself under and over and through and between everything he sees and hears and feels and thinks? And the worst of it was that now, for the first time since he had found that he was not lame, he felt more than felt, he knew that the old New Cross life had not been a fever dream, and that Beale, who had been kind to him, and taken him through the pleasant country, and slept with him in the bed with green curtains, was really waiting for him at Gravesend. And this is all a dream, said Dickie, and I must wake up. But he couldn't wake up. And the trees and grass and lights and beautiful things, the kindly great people with their splendid dresses, the king and queen, the aunts and uncles, and all the little cousins, all these things refused to fade away and jumble themselves up as things do in dreams. They remained solid and real. He knew that this must be a dream, and that Beale and Gravesend and New Cross and the old lame life were the real thing, and yet he could not wake up. All the same, the light had gone out of everything, and it is small wonder that when he got home at last, very tired indeed, to his father's house at Deptford, he burst into tears as nurse was undressing him. "'What ails my lamb?' she asked. "'I can't explain. You wouldn't understand,' said Dickie. "'Try,' she said very earnestly. He looked round the room at the tapestries and heavy furniture. "'I can't,' he said. "'Try,' she said again. "'It's... don't laugh, nurse. There's a dream that feels real.' about a dreadful place, oh, so different from this. But there's a man waiting there for me that was good to me when I was, when I wasn't, that was good to me. He's waiting in the dream, and I want to get back to him, and I can't. Thart better here than in that dreadful place, said the nurse, stroking his hair. Yes, but Beale, I know he's waiting there. I wish I could bring him here. Not yet, said the nurse surprisingly. Tis not easy to bring those we love from one dream to another. One dream to another? Didst never hear that all life is a dream? she asked him. But thou shalt go. Heaven forbid that one of thy race should fail a friend. Look, there are fresh sheets on thy bed. Lie still and think of him that was good to thee. He lay there, very still. He had decided to wake up, to wake up to the old, hard, cruel life, to poverty, dullness, lameness. There was no other thing to be done. He must wake up and keep his promise to Beale. But it was hard, hard, hard. 
the beautiful house the beautiful garden the games the boat building the soft clothes the kind people the uplifting sense that he was somebody yet he must go yes if he could he would the nurse had taken burning wood from the hearth and set it on a silver plate now she strewed something on the glowing embers lie straight and still she said and wished thyself where thou wast when thou left that dream he did so a thick sweet smoke rose from the little fire in the silver plate and the nurse was chanting something in a very low voice men die men dies not times fly time flies not that was all he heard though he heard confusedly that there was more he seemed to sink deep into a soft sea of sleep to be rocked on its tide and then to be flung by its waves roughly suddenly on some hard shore of awakening he opened his eyes he was in the little bare front room in new cross tinkler and the white seal lay on the floor among white moonflower seeds confusedly scattered and the gas lamp from the street shone through the dirty panes on the newspapers and sacking what a dream said dickie shivering and very sleepy oh what a dream he put tinkler and the seal in one pocket gathered up the moon seeds and put them in the other drew the old newspapers over him and went to sleep the morning sun woke him how odd he said to dream all that weeks and weeks in just a little bit of one little night if it had only been true he jumped up eager to start for gravesend since he had waked out of that wonderful dream on purpose to go to gravesend he might as well start at once but his jump ended in a sickening sideways fall and his head knocked against the wainscot i had forgotten he said slowly i shouldn't have thought any dream could have made me forget about my foot for he had indeed forgotten it and had leaped up eagerly confidently as a sound child leaps and the lame foot had betrayed him thrown him down he crawled across to where the crutch lay the old broom cut down that lady talbot had covered with a black velvet for him and now he said i must get to gravesend he looked out of the window at the dismal sordid street i wonder he said if deptford was ever really like it was in my dreams the gardens and the clean river and the fields he got out of the house when no one was looking and went off down the street clickety-clack went the crutch on the dusty pavement his back ached, his lame foot hurt, his good leg was tired and stiff, and his heart, too, was very tired. About this time, in the dream he had chosen to awaken from, for the sake of Beale, 
a bowl of porridge would be smoking at the end of a long oak table and a great carved chair would be set for a little boy who was not there dickie strode on manfully but the pain in his back made him feel sick i don't know as i can do it he said then he saw three gold balls above the door of the friendly pawnbroker he looked hesitated shrugged his shoulders and went in hello said the pawnbroker here we are again want to pawn the rattle eh no said dickie but what'll you give me on the seal you gave me the pawnbroker stared frowned and burst out laughing if you don't beat all he said i give you a present and you come to pledge it with me you should have been one of our people so you want to pledge the seal well well i'd much rather not said dickie seriously because i love it very much but i must have my fare to gravesend my father's there waiting for me and i don't want to leave tinkler behind he showed the rattle what's the fare to gravesend don't know i thought you'd know will you give me the fare for the seal the pawnbroker hesitated and looked hard at him no he said no the seal's not worth it not but what it's a very good seal he added very good indeed see here said dickie suddenly i know what honor is now and the word of a gentleman you will not let me pledge the seal with you then let me pledge my word my word of honor lend me the money to take me to gravesend and by the honor of a gentleman i will repay you within a month the voice was firm the accent though strange was not the accent of deptford street boys it was the accent of the boy who had had two tutors and a big garden a place in the king's water party and a knowledge of what it means to belong to a noble house the pawnbroker looked at him with the unerring instinct of his race he knew that this was not play acting that there was something behind it something real the sense of romance of great things all about them transcending the ordinary things of life this in the jews has survived centuries of torment shame cruelty and oppression this inherited sense of romance in the pawnbroker now leapt to answer dickie's appeal and i do hope i am not confusing you stick to it read it again if you don't understand what i mean is that the jews always see the big beautiful things they don't just see that gray is made of black and white they see how incredibly black black can be and that there may be a whiteness transcending all the whitest dreams in the world you're a rum little chap was what the pawnbroker said but i like your pluck every man's got to make a fool of himself one time or another he added apologizing to the spirit of business you mean you will said dickie eagerly 
"'More fool of me,' said the Jew, feeling in his pocket. "'You won't be sorry. Not in the end you won't,' said Dickie, as the pawnbroker laid certain monies before him on the mahogany counter. "'You'll lend me this? You'll trust me?' "'Looks like it,' said the Jew. "'Then some day I shall do something for you. I don't know what, but something. We never forget.' We—' He stopped. He remembered that he was poor little lame Dick Harding, with no right to that other name which had been his in the dream. He picked up the coins, put them in his pocket, felt the moon seeds. "'I cannot repay your kindness,' he said, "'though some day I will repay your silver. But these seeds, the moon seeds—' He pulled out a handful. You liked the flowers? He handed a generous score across the red-brown polished wood. Thank you, my lad, said the pawnbroker. I'll raise them in gentle heat. I think they grow best in moonlight, said Dickie. So he came to Gravesend and the common lodging house, and the weary, sad, and very anxious man rose up from his place by the fire when the clickety-clack of the crutch sounded on the threshold. "'It's the nipper,' he said, and came very quickly to the door, and got his arm round Dickie's shoulders. "'The little nipper! So it ain't. I thought you'd gotten pinched.' "'No, I didn't. I knew your clever ways. I knew you was bound to turn up.' "'Yes,' said Dickie, looking round the tramp's kitchen and remembering the long, clean tapestry-hung dining-hall of his dream. "'Yes, I was bound to turn up. You wanted me to, didn't you?' he added. "'Wanted you to?' Beale answered, holding him close and looking at him, as men look at some rare treasure gained with much cost, and after long seeking. "'Wanted you not? Arf! I don't think!' and drew him in and shut the door. "'Then I'm glad I came,' said Dickie. But in his heart he was not glad. In his heart he longed for that pleasant house where he was the young master and was not lame any more. But in his soul he was glad, because the soul is greater than the heart and knows greater things. And now Dickie loved Beale more than ever, because for him he had sacrificed his dream so he had gained something, because loving people is the best thing in the world, better even than being loved. Just think this out, will you, and see if I'm not right. There were herrings for tea, and in the hard bed with his clothes and his boots under the pillows, Dickie slept soundly, but he did not dream. Yet when he woke in the morning, remembering many things, he said to himself, Is this the dream, or was the other the dream? And it seemed a foolish question, with the feel of the coarse sheets, and the smell of the close room, and Mr. Beale's voice saying, Rouse up, Nipper, there's sausingers for breakfast. End of chapter 4, part 2